Hey there, everybody. Welcome to a brand new podcast. This is You Know What's Fucked Up with your co-hosts. My name is Tim Hackman. And I'm Allison Jennings Roche. And we are super excited. We're kind of jazzed about this idea. Um, So we're a couple of uh, lifelong academics. I think that's probably fair. Fair enough, for sure. A couple (laughs) of gaps in between. Yeah, with some with some gaps, like you do. Um, and we got to uh, chatting by text one day about a, a variety of things that annoy us in our uh, in our chosen profession in higher education and uh, society at large. And I said, you know what's fucked up? That thing. And then we kind of went back and forth and like, hey, that's fucked up too. And I think what we realized is there's a lot of stuff that's fucked up. And we thought maybe it'd be fun to sort of pick a particular thing each episode and and talk about it a little bit. Does that sound kind of what, you, what you're imagining, Allison? I mean, I certainly think so. You know, we, uh, we basically only stay in contact by sharing our grievances with each other, um, <laughs> and sometimes with solutions and sometimes just with a bit of a bitch fest. So I yeah. appreciate that we'll have a more um, intentional platform to both talk about the things that are structurally problematic, institutionally problematic, socially problematic, and hopefully both provide some catharsis for ourselves and our listeners, but also be able to let people walk away with some strategies. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to put it. That was brilliant. It's like you've done this before. Yeah, we really want to take a particular issue, dig into it a little bit, um, again, talk about some ways to sort of move forward. Um, we have an email address. It's, it's ykwfupodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. We are uh, on the web at ykw. That's really hard to say. Maybe we need to rethink this whole title. YKWFUpodcast.com. That'll take you to this page. And we're just getting started, but we will have this up on all the podcast apps eventually. And then maybe, I don't know, I'm I'm kind of over social media, but that also seems to be, you know, you kind of need to do it. So who knows? It is a useful tool, unfortunately, or fortunately. Do you want to be our social media coordinator? I, I will if I have to be. It's um it's a great job. It pays zero dollars, uh, <laughs> but you get the the really the satisfaction of of arguing with literally the dumbest people you've ever seen. Um, <laughs> sounds sounds uh, like a great use of my time. Yeah, sure. yeah. Anyway, so um just a just a kind of standard disclaimer here at the top. We both work for institutions of higher education, but our opinions, of course, of our own are our own and not at all representative of those institutions, nor do we claim to speak for anyone but ourselves. We again have a variety of experiences across the the gamut of higher ed, and we have some of the same and some different uh, observations, frustrations, things we really love about our professions, things that really annoy us to no end. Um, the aim of the podcast is really to examine issues affecting higher ed, how it keeps our institutions, scholars, and students from reaching their potential, and what we might do about it. So that's that's kind of where we're coming from. Absolutely. And I think I'd also add that we are adding a very library-focused lens on this sometimes too, but I think that's useful, right? Because librarians kind of sit at the center of these institutions and have both a relationship with many different facets of higher educational institutions, but we also are a bit more outward-focused, right, with our communities. So both in our roles and just the way we think about issues in the world, I can't say that it would be purely higher ed. It's really influenced by this uh, this library lens that we bring to things, whether or not we're speaking about library specific topics or not. Yeah, that's that's a excellent point. Um, so with that, maybe with that in mind, maybe it's time to uh, to get into our very first very first topic. What do you think? Yeah, sure. So uh, you know what's fucked up this week, Tim? What's fucked up, Allison? Banned books and censorship in general. That is really fucked up. 
That's super timely topic, of course. October 1st through 7th was Banned Books Week across the U.S. There was lots of displays, lots of uh, activities in libraries, some of them uh, some of them useful, some of them not so much. Um, but even a, a cursory look at the news will tell you this is this is a thing. It's 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 always been around. It seems to come in like I don't know twenty year cycles um, or so. But it just it seems a little more um, I don't know insidious this time or uh, disruptive. I'm not sure what, what the right what the right word is, but it just it feels different somehow. Would you? I would actually say that in some ways this is perhaps one of the most um, dangerous uh, structurally and um, kind of in terms of personnel, in terms of censorship in the United States. Throughout many, many different periods of history, we can see there's this contraction that happens whenever social progress happens for minoritized voices. The way um, a small reactionary subset of the population wants to respond to that is to remove access to materials, to voices, to perspectives. Um, and we'll go into this more about where we've seen this throughout history. Um, but right now we have both social media, which lets people spin each other up very, very quickly, spread messages across um, the country, allow one or two uh, you know, well-placed, very loud people to define <laughs> the narrative for an entire community. Um, and this is the first time in history that we've really seen the provision of access, right? Like the work of library workers every day be criminalized. In the past, yeah. there have been book burnings. There have been book bannings. Things have been removed from shelves and continue to be, right? Like that's not totally new. It's never totally gone away. But this is the first time that we have seen laws across the country attempting to quite literally put library workers in jail for just providing access to materials and doing their jobs. Yeah, for sure. It's infuriating. And I have a little story about that here. I'm going to um, just give you a little bit of a, so, some of the scope of the problem uh, at the moment. So our major professional organization, American Library Association, has an Office of Intellectual Freedom who documents these things. They found 1,269 demands to censor library books and resources. That was last year in 2022. Of course, we're not done with 23 yet, but I'm guessing the number will be significantly higher. Um, it is the highest number of attempted book bans since ALA began compiling that data more than 20 years ago. Uh, there were 729 book challenges in 2021, so it doubled, almost doubled. Um, they targeted a record of 2,571 unique titles in 2022. Again, a 38% increase uh, from the previous year. And this is important, and we're going to come back to it. Of those titles, the vast majority were written by or about members of the LGBTQIA plus community or by and about black people, indigenous people, and people of color. That is not a coincidence. Here in Virginia, where I live, uh, almost 400 book titles have been challenged this year, according to uh, ALA, as reported by uh, our local public media, WHRO. And even more disturbing is that there's a trend where an individual or a group comes to a library and sort of presents a whole list of books that are LGBTQIA-themed or about the lives and experiences of black people and uh, describe our history of racism in a way that uh, they don't agree with and they want that whole swath of materials removed. So it's not just one parent saw a book they don't like, get riled up about it and challenge it. It's a sort of coordinated, systematic, political action that's attempting to sort of enforce a racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic, transphobic all the other things, uh, view of the world. That was a quote, the last, not the transphobic stuff, but the uh, the part about um, folks coming with their list. That was that was a quote from uh, from the ALA. There's um, 
Book Riot and every library did a survey about this, and they found that most parents and guardians, so 67% think book bans are a waste of time, and 74% agree, or at least somewhat agree, that book bans infringe on their right to make decisions for their children. 89% said parents and guardians are the ones primarily responsible for what their child reads. 92% said that they feel that their children are safe at the library, and two-thirds said their children had never checked out a book that made them or their children uncomfortable, right? It was two different numbers there. Um, so basically, it's the same sort of 30% minority who continue to support certain far-right candidates and pursue social and political agendas that are anti-pluralist and anti-democratic. So that's, again, not a, not a big surprise. Um, that was a whole lot of uh, data off the top. Do you have anything to add about any of those? Yeah, and I would just like to provide for clarification's sake, especially because people are listening, um, that when we say the word minority in this context, we really just mean it's a small segment of American society. These are not minoritized people in that sense. These are um, very dominant voices. These are white people. These are right wing. These are um, people that are really being spun up. And it's really just a small segment of society that supports this movement at all. Um, but they're doing a really good job of getting their message out. They're doing a good job of getting their people at these board meetings. And often you'll see perhaps one, two, three people presenting these complaints, these book complaints, um, to the local populace. So even when we see this 30% number, I wouldn't say that, you know, the challenges, the bans are really well even spread across that 30%. That's just the percentage of people that are like, okay, I'm actually cool with censorship. Um, but the people who are active and really engaged is a tiny, tiny, tiny segment of American society. Um, and as you mentioned at the top, on top of those kinds of attacks, there's uh, also sort of harassment and intimidation at a legislative level, which is also um, sort of new and, and a little bit scary. Um, this is from an article in the Washington Post from back in May, May 18th. It says librarians could face years of imprisonment and tens of thousands in fines for providing quote, sexually explicit, obscene, or harmful books to children under new state laws that permit criminal prosecution of school and library personnel. At least seven states have passed such laws in the past two years, according to a Washington Post analysis, six of them in the past two months. Again, this was from May, although governors of Idaho and North Dakota vetoed that legislation. Another dozen states considered more than 20 similar bills last year, half of which are likely to come up again in 2024, the Post found. And there's a quote here from Keith Gambrell, president of the Teachers Union in Indiana, one of the states that adopted these um, obscenity laws, quote unquote obscenity laws, says, it will make sure that the only literature students are exposed to fits into a narrow scope of what some people want the world to look like. This is my 37th year in education, and I've never seen anything like this. We are entering a very frightening period. And I agree with uh, Mr. Gambrell there for sure. That's um, that's messed up. I may even say fucked up. Incredibly so. And again, even that, that movement to really criminalize the provision of library work, library workers in public libraries or in schools, isn't even just about limiting access to these books. Ultimately, there is a goal and aim of running people out of the field. They don't want library workers to feel comfortable in these communities, in these spaces. And ultimately, um, you know, this is a much harder web to pull together, but many scholars, thinkers um, definitely agree that this is a part of an ultimate aim to destabilize, delegitimize the public sphere in general. So one of the best ways to do that is to make 
people that serve the public, librarians, library workers, school teachers, school librarians, feel endangered either physically or financially by doing their work. Because while, you know, those of us who are a little bit more activist and vocal and really willing to step into the fray here may not have a problem doing so, it's it's really, really frightening that people who just you know, serve the public, work at a desk every day, are now being asked to not just deal with legislative threats, but it's spinning up populations of extremely angry and potentially violent people to go into their libraries and make them feel unsafe. So it's also encouraging a level of self-censorship. And that ALA data, even the Book Riot data, the Every Library data cannot truly reflect the steps that librarians and library workers and school library workers are taking in an attempt to keep themselves safe, right? Maybe they're putting the books behind the desks. Maybe they're trying to capitulate to these forces. And and I have compassion for that. I am not going to judge someone who's attempting to do things they need to do to keep themselves safe wherever they are. But this threat is so much more pernicious than even the things we can see reflected in the news reports and in the data, because people are making these choices and removing access to these books and these texts, not because they don't want people to see themselves reflected in those books, but because they are genuinely afraid for their safety and well-being. Those are really good ways to kind of ground this this discussion. Um, so we've got a little bit of the, the scope of the problem. Uh, I thought we could talk a little bit more about you know why now? Why this? Why this particular moment? Um, and then you know what's what works and what doesn't uh, in terms of sort of warding off. And uh, I don't actually. I don't. I prefer sort of going on the attack as opposed to playing defense. But again, you know, people have varying degrees of appetite for that kind of political stuff. They also have varying degrees of ability to engage with it, you know, based on sort of their level of privilege and where they are, you know, in their career or even geographically. Some places are just not safe physically for some of these uh, folks to to kind of push back in, um, you know, really loud and, and forceful ways. And so they, they do, like you said, kind of go with these other um other sort of methods, which, you know, which are designed to let them basically exist and, and go about their work. Um, and I think another thing to to just sort of foreground here for a second is that this, you know, to, to somebody, you know, of, with privilege and somebody who's kind of um, wanting to, to push a specific worldview and remove some of these uh, differing um, views and, and experiences and such, it may not seem like a big thing, but to a kid, you know, say coming up in a, uh, in a very sort of conservative environment, who's maybe who's starting to question their own sexuality or their gender identity, um, very often the first place that they find, um, you know, things that sort of affirm and just kind of give them um, you know, kind of the the confidence and the the knowledge to just sort of move forward in the world is books, is the library, is the school library, um, could be a librarian or a teacher who helps them connect to something that um, that matters to them. And you know, there's tons of stories online um, about people say, yeah, absolutely, I was I was. 12. I didn't know what the fuck was going on. I was thinking about suicide and I found this book and it made me feel like I was not alone all of a sudden, right? Or I found this movie and it made me feel like I wasn't alone and I could understand, you know, what was going on and help me cope a little bit, help me find a community. And that, so those things are, are harder to um, quantify a little bit, but they, they definitely exist. And um, so you do real damage to real people when you, play these games with uh, what people can read and view. 
Absolutely. And not only are those children not going to see themselves reflected on the shelves or not have that resource that they may have otherwise had, but they are hearing these vicious, vicious messages in the media. They are seeing people in their community who they thought, you know, were their parent, the parents of friends or maybe even their own parents or their local politicians saying that their perspectives, their voices not only aren't valid, but they're threatening, they're dangerous, they're harmful, they're sick. There's other rhetorical messages that I won't even repeat in this context because I don't think it's useful. And I think sometimes, even those of us in the library land, we talk about, oh, it's, it's such a loss that these books may not be on the shelves. I think we also need to foreground the fact that this is so incredibly devastating and harmful to the psyches, to the communities, to these young children that are potentially LGBTQ or they're a racial minority in a community that that may not be so common um, to hear their community really um, go up in arms to say how how um, unwelcome that they are, right? And how yeah. much they don't want to see them represented. And that I sometimes think sometimes gets lost here in these debates. So like we said, what's what's happening? What's why now, right? What's different about this particular moment in time? What what's going on that this stuff is starting to pop up? What's your take on that? Yeah, um so this is an interesting piece and I don't think I've said that at this at um at throughout this recording yet, but I am I'm currently working on a PhD on this topic, right? This is something that I spend a lot of my time and my energy and my brain space thinking about. And I'm also listening to a lot of other people that are thinking about these things. And in that space, you'll see a lot in the popular media about how this current moment is polarized and there's just two sides fighting and all of those kinds of things. And I, I think that's fundamentally untrue. Right? I don't think we're in a moment of extreme polarization in terms of one side or the other. I think we're in a moment of extreme radicalization on only one side. Right, We are currently in a moment in the post-Trump era and even during the Trump era that it has suddenly become socially acceptable to say these kinds of things, to attack other people. Um, and this kind of rhetoric and the messages that came out of the Trump administration and all of the political apparatus around that really empowered people to be vocal and open with their hatred for other people. And then it's also encouraged a kind of radicalization of others, right? We have always known that there are hateful people within American society. There always have been. But it's spreading. And it's spreading because of social media. It is spreading because of the internet. It's spreading because of the algorithms, right? And the click hole, like holes that we end up in, you search this one term, and then you're pulled further and further and further down. And then you add on the, you know, the perfect mess of COVID where everyone's isolated and not having to engage with their broader community, but they're engaging with this extremely small micro community online of people that are saying the things that they think and reinforcing that. So we, we have this like perfect storm and then you have a ton of money being intentionally funneled into these campaigns. This isn't, I don't even want to pretend like, oh, this is something that sprung up in the dark corners of the internet. This is very intentionally being the fans of this fire being flamed by those who are using it to change the political, um, the political sphere in the United States right now. So what they're doing is Fundamentally, they're shifting the Overton window if we want to get nerdy about it, but they're changing what is acceptable to say and who's allowed to say it, right? I've done a number of talks where I go, oh, it's not about the books because it's really not. We can't put that genie back in the bottle. The internet exists. It's about saying, 
these voices, these people are no longer welcome in American society. How do we demonstrate that? What is an action, right? And they found the perfect leverage point to make their point in the broader society, to yeah. make LGBTQ people feel unwelcome, to make people of color feel unwelcome. That's what they're doing with the hope that then they can push other kinds of regressive and restrictive laws overall. It's not going to stop here. It didn't start here, that's for sure, but it's not going to stop here. And libraries and public schools are just in the middle of this much larger cultural moment. Well, on the right, like does like to sort of attach things to children as a sort of perfect rhetorical tool, right? Because who could be against helping the children or saving the children or protecting the children or whatever it is? And so they they couch all of this in, in those sort of terms. And then it makes it very difficult to to sort of mount a, um, a defense because, you know, God knows you don't want to be accused of presenting obscene materials to children, you know, which when, of course, that's not at all what's going on. Um, and so that's, that's a very, you know, it's devious, but it's also very smart um, sort of rhetorical, rhetorical and political move um, that kind of it cuts the legs out from under a lot of uh, the arguments that we would make, right? Like it's hard to kind of get into sort of higher level discussions about intellectual freedom and freedom of expression and blah, blah, blah. When somebody's like, oh, you want children to look at porn, like, you know what I mean? Like it's, those are two different, those are two different arguments and they're pretending that they're the same. I mean, I actually, I agree with what you're saying. And I think that's where a lot of librarians and library, like freedom, intellectual freedom advocates are getting spun up. But I think that's because we kind of suck at this like punchy rhetorical strategy. I think there are perfectly useful and simple messages that we could be using to retort these things instead of going to this intellectual freedom matters, every voice matters, let's talk about the theory of democracy and the First Amendment. Ultimately, I am a parent, right? I have small children. I make decisions about what they read, what media they interact with every day. And anyone who tells you that they don't is not being serious, right? Like my small yeah. children aren't watching horror movies. There's plenty of choices that I make for them all the time. But what we could easily say and easily counter with is I get to make decisions for my children. You don't get to make decisions for my children, right? You as a parent, these parents' right movements, they want to claim that they are protecting their children. But what they're really doing is they're telling other parents that they can't make choices for their own children. So yeah. I think if we gave ourselves the tools and gave ourselves the okay to say, hey, we're going to use just a short, pithy, punchy strategy to fight against these movements, then we would be in a much better place, right? Um, I definitely hear what you're saying. And the larger movement absolutely is extremely co complex and they're using these kinds of things as an easy tool. But I think we could just as easily do so in saying that I'm a parent too, right? There's the 70% of parents in any one community are going to say, I make decisions about what my children read. You don't make decisions for my children, actually. Um, and I think that sometimes gets lost along this this whole path. Yeah, no, hundred percent. So I, so my mom, um, my mom and dad were they, so they met. Um, somebody hooked them up through church, right? So they were they were fairly religious, born again types, um, and they they kind of softened on it as they got older. But when I was a kid, um, in the early mid eighties, there was a bit of a uh, witchcraft, uh, satanic panic thing going on mm -hmm. and everything was related to witchcraft. You know, all, every toy, every cartoon, every music video was related to witchcraft somehow. And, um, they were, they were, they were worried to death about this, of course. Um, and so they, you know, they, there were certain things that was, I wasn't allowed to watch, um, Thundercats when it first came out because there was <laughs> like, cause the mummy was like a witchcraft or something. I don't know. Mm. Um, I was, 
terrified of Dungeons and Dragons, even though I didn't really know what it was. Um, I thought that somebody was going to take me out in the woods and cut my head off. Um, but anyway, my point being is that they made very clear content decisions for my sister and I uh, when in the confines of their house, right? We didn't play these things on the TV. We didn't, uh, you know, we didn't bring certain music or whatever in the house. But I don't know that it ever would have occurred to them to like go down to the school and start lobbying against books for other people's kids to read, right? Like, and we, you know, we would discuss this as parents and children like well you know sammy's mom lets him read whatever and she's like well i'm not sammy's mom you know so like um and those those discussions i can't imagine those discussions still aren't happening (laughs) i mean i think they absolutely are in my house i say to my kids all the time they go oh well so and so gets you know coca-cola before bed i'm like different house different rules right like even the most progressive parents on earth are making some decisions i will say though just a like gentle pushback there are plenty of people that were trying to um ban witchcraft related books in that time period i'm glad your parents weren't a part of that um but we can see at that time period a lot of it was actually tied to women's um engagement in the workforce and the idea was if women aren't in the home watching their children all the time then these evil satanic forces are going to um, take control. Um, So it was, even in that time, an extremely reactionary movement that was tied to social change. And these books were really just a tool of saying, hey, women, you need to get back in the house or your children are going to be used in some kind of evil (laughs) satanic ritual through Thundercats and Dungeons and Dragons, right? We, We sometimes, you know, looking back on history, we're like, oh, that's so silly. But if you take a couple steps back and look at the historical social context, it's actually much more terrifying than it seems, right? I'm not I'm not scared of Dungeons and Dragons. I don't want to sit still that long, but I'm not scared of it. <laughs> um, but at the same time, the social regressive forces were how do how do we get women back in the home? How do we get women out of the workforce? Here's our tool. Here's a way to push that agenda. And again, schools and libraries were at the the center of that overall movement. Well, and they were right because my mom eventually got a job and then I, I immediately became a Satanist. It was like the same day she, she left the house and I'm like, well, I guess I'm into Satan now. Thanks, mom. <laughs> anyway, that didn't happen. Kids don't don't listen to me. I don't make I don't make any sense. So what what can we do? A lot of what happens is is getting into arguments about particular titles. You know, like this book is about penguins and leave it you know leave it alone this book is about this and it's good for this reason it's it's not bad for that reason uh, and that's obviously that's whack-a-mole right as you've said before that's just that's attacking uh, a very small symptom of a of a much bigger problem so so where do we go and where do we start yeah so i actually would like to start with the idea that we shouldn't be doing that we shouldn't be uh, defending title by title, right? Because we're no. handing the rules of engagement, the argument, the conversation to the extreme reactionary, whatever terms you want to use to describe this movement, right? So as soon as you engage them on a debate about the particulars of a different title, you're giving them the ability to just pull out a new one tomorrow. Also, you're giving them the ability to debate the rights, the values, the perspectives of minoritized populations in the public sphere. So by you saying, oh, actually, we need to see these voices because blah, 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 you're opening that conversation to allow 
for us to argue about whether or not queer people need to be seen in the media, right? That's just not a debate we need to be having. We don't need to open that door and we don't need to hand them the opportunity to continue to counter our attacks, right? Because these are arguments about real people, real communities, and real movements. And so this whole, you know, Banned Books Week is interesting, but I also don't love it because it keeps the focus on these specific titles and the idea that we should be protecting each one. And I think ultimately that's not, it's not a winning strategy and it is actively harmful to the minoritized communities that are being targeted in this current movement of censorship and book banning. So ultimately, you know, the most important things you can do, you know, I'm not going to say vote. That's that's silly. I hope everyone listening to this podcast is voting, right? It's showing up. It's showing visibly and vocally that there, you are part of that 70% that doesn't agree with this movement. It is getting all of your buddies to wear a blue t-shirt because the blue people, you know, pick a color, green, whatever you want to say, and showing up to these school board meetings, anyone in that community. And I do want to caution against, um, you know, a little bit of things that sometimes I'll see this idea that like, oh, we should all go to this one community, whatever. People know when you're from there or when you're not. And I think that that can be more harmful to be outsiders telling people how to run their own communities. But we know, right? We look at the data and we can see that there are many, many, many people in every community who do not agree with this kind of book banning, this movement, no matter the choices that they would make for their children in their own homes, right? I'm operating from a very big tent perspective. I don't think everyone needs to be a progressive or on the left or a far left. I think there's many people in the center, many moderates, many people perhaps even in the Republican Party who don't agree with this, right? And we need to include all of them in our coalition building to push back against this extreme reactionary force. And we need to welcome them all to our counter protest, our counter strategies, our talking to lawmakers, and, you know, really finding a way to work together to uphold what is fundamentally the First Amendment and rights for all within the society and the value of public schools and public libraries. Um, So obviously show up, be vocal, be active, find ways to get connected. Um, I'm sure in the show notes, we're going to connect you to some resources where you can add your names to some of those email lists, right? Some people say, um, you know, petitions don't work. Petitions work for the sake of identifying people in an area that you can easily email, right? I just got an email from one of these groups that said, hey, there's a movement in your area that's going on. Can you show up to this meeting? Right. That's very, very useful for targeting people and getting people connected. And I don't think it's worth um, setting those things aside. I think it's worth embracing them. Um, and then I think it's on us, like the library leaders, the loud progressives, the the ALAs, the every libraries, the book riots to come up with effective um, countermeasures, rhetorical strategy, policy advocacy. I will never, ever say that this is on you know, the shoulders of those who are working on the front lines. I think it's absolutely silly that we're acting like every single library worker needs to be an experienced PR strategist because that's kind of where we are, right? We're leaving it in the hands of each individual library worker instead of accepting that this is on leadership, this is on management, this is on scholars, this is on activists. um, And we need to help mobilize the local communities to get people to show up. But we also need to provide people with tools and frameworks to respond And a part of that management framework is, you know, management, leadership, uh, whatever that means, you need to figure out your policies. How do you protect people's jobs when these kind of book bans come through? How do you figure out 
how to keep people safe physically and mentally and emotionally when they're being targeted by their community for having books on the shelves. And I, I think that this is kind of an all hands on deck situation and we need to take this incredibly seriously. And also, you know, go back to the old bureaucratic mainstays like, oh, it's a policy. Here's our policy. Yeah. Those kinds of things are incredibly useful at this kind of in this kind of mo moment. Right. Let's not discount the fact that having a written policy can be one of the most important things any organization can have when it's facing this kind of attack. Because we do know that many, especially public library workers, work at the whim of functionally local politicians, right? So it's on the library systems themselves to write the kinds of policies that will protect their collections. Sure, absolutely. But also their people. One of the other things we've talked about is, uh, you know, in terms of the all hands on deck is the academic librarians. We have been largely immune from a lot of this stuff. We're just sort of out of the, um, not out of the loop, but it, we're out of the firing line um, because, well, because the schools and um, public libraries are easier targets, honestly. Um, and it's easier to put sort of political pressure and get people fired in that in that kind of environment. But this is a place where we can use our standing, use our our privilege, if you will, to sort of, you know, show up and, and help out. The Virtual Library of Virginia, which is most of the major academic libraries across the state, we our leadership was just talking last week, I just saw a draft of a sort of a, a general like a statement in support of our public and school library colleagues, which I think is a great place to start. But I think what like I'd like to see next is some genuine plans for action, you know, whether that's uh, phone calls or, or writing or petitions or actually just going and showing up because we have people, well, this is a huge state and there's, you know, some pretty rural and red corners of it and there's some pretty blue and progressive corners of it. So you can kind of pick your pick your spots and there's plenty of plenty of work to be done. So that's something that I'm hoping to see a little bit more of. Uh, and if not, maybe, you know, maybe we do it ourselves. Um, but I do, yeah, I'm with you. Like the public library employees deal with enough shit as it is, <laughs> sometimes literal. Uh, the last thing they need is is uh, a bunch of um, belligerent uh, bigots um, in their face day after day. So yeah, this is this is a job for the for the leadership really to to protect your own people and and push back on these things. Yeah. And I would like to add in too, right? Like we're talking about academic libraries. I'm an academic librarian. I would also like to caution against academic libraries and librarians um, putting out things like statements or doing programs or things that are really building your own CV to be like, hey, look, we did banned books week. We did intellectual freedom protection, yeah. all of these things. We like to really pat ourselves on the back. And I'll say this, I don't mind um, without doing any real action. And I think this is a moment where that's completely unacceptable. We can for the most part, I can't speak for every state, show up to a school board meeting and not be under any chance of losing our jobs, right? We have the ability to build coalitions, to step back and listen to our public library colleagues and say, hey, what do you need? And I can show up and say that in a public space for you. I'm here. I'm a librarian. I have job protection. Maybe I have faculty status. Maybe I have academic freedom status. Let me really show up and take the lead and do something for you. And I would really caution against the idea of just doing, you know, events or programming or building a lib guide or something. That's all useful. Sure, do that. <laughs> but that's not activism. And that's not no. doing what needs to be done with the level of privilege and protection you have as an academic librarian. Because this is a time for us to kind of stand in the gap and protect our colleagues on the other side and say, hey, you know what? I can't be fired for saying this. So I'll say what you need me to say. Just feed me the talking points. Yeah. <laughs> maybe uh maybe a libguide is not 
What did you say? Libs guides are not activism. Maybe that should yeah. be the unofficial slogan of this show. Um, <laughs> if you're not um, in academic yes. libraries, LibGuides is a is a tool put together by a company called Springshare, and it's a great tool. Um, you use it to sort of create guides to library resources and reading lists and databases and all kinds of stuff. It's great. Librarians love it, but they love it to uh, an absurd extreme where it sort of takes over any other real work that they should be doing. <laughs> it's like, well, it went in doubt. You're like, well, I'll just, I'll just build a lib guide about it. Uh, and then that's, that's sort of like, that's the end of the engagement with it. Um, anyway, so I don't, it's not a criticism of the tool at all. It's a uh, criticism of sort of a uncritical, um, just <laughs> all in uh, on that to the exclusion of everything else. I was at the ALA conference one time and their, their booth had a, uh, a sticker that said keep calm and build a lib guide which oh I've, no oh no <laughs> which made me want to hand in my ala card and just jump in front of a train it was oh. it was, uh, it was oh. well <sighs> and to be fair i don't think that that's hugely different than what a lot of other activists are doing right no. or i mean academics are doing i didn't mean activists um because there's a lot of people that are like oh i did gave a lecture i gave a talk or i wrote an article right this is an academia problem as much as it's a librarian problem, we just happen to have a nice shiny tool that provides links and images and everything else. Um, yeah. And I think that we need to be really honest with ourselves and understand that scholarship even is not activism. Activism is activism. And in this current moment, um, we're librarians, right? Like, let's center that first and let's show up and figure out how we can help stand in uh, in community with our public and school library colleagues and not rely on these uh well-tread and incredibly useful tools. I love me a libguide when I need to answer a research question about a topic I don't know about, right? Like that's yeah. incredibly useful, but it's certainly not a way to really provide any form of public engagement or to engage with our community, whether that's our students, our fellow faculty, or, you know, the community, the larger community, a lot of public institutions consider themselves as serving their local community as well. Um, and we need to, we need to know that we need to really center that and go, oh, this is just a this is just a landing page um, yeah. or even this event is just a place for things, people to talk about things, but provide people with action items and next steps and tools to really engage or be willing to show up yourself, right? Like the great thing about academic institutions is usually people aren't living right next to it. A lot of times people are living distributed throughout a state or a region. So if you can build networks based on your neighborhood, your community, your county, um, and find ways to allow your, you know, special protected academic librarian status and whatever that means to show up for your local community, then please, please leverage that. I think we can agree that this is kind of fucked up, um, but I do actually feel fairly positive anyway not not like super everything's going to be amazing but like that there's actually some really good advice and takeaways here i wrote down a couple i wrote down lib guides are not activism i wrote <laughs> show up uh i wrote oh think about how your activities your engagement your outreach or whatever um can turn towards actual action not just not raising awareness is great raising awareness is is valuable, um, but it's also not enough, uh, I don't think. So, um, absolutely. And... I would also add, like, don't overcomplicate it. I think in academia yeah. and in librarianship, we tend to get spun up and we have to explain all the issues. We have to give all sides. Find really, really simple ways to engage with the parts of your community that are in danger of becoming radicalized, right? Do I think that you're going to be able to change the minds of the people that are deeply entrenched in this reactionary moment? 
No, I don't. But do I think you can potentially talk to your brother, your uncle, your your barista, your mechanic and say, hey, this stuff really doesn't make sense. Do you do you really think that's happening in a really open and compassionate way? Then that will go much further than attempting to provide them with, you know, huge doses of scholarship or um, really academic ways of thinking about things. Let's just be open to people and say, hmm, I don't I don't know about that. That that doesn't sound right. Do you really think that Librarians are providing pornography in public libraries? Mm, I don't think so. Do you Do you really think so? Um, and I have some dear friends that are doing this in really meaningful ways um, in their communities. And these are not librarians, not academics. Many of them are even blue collar. And the arguments I'm hearing from my friends, including one friend who's a plumber, is way more effective than the things I've heard coming out of the mouths of scholars and academics and academic librarians. So be willing to listen and learn from the people in your community that are making an impact and communicating effectively that aren't necessarily experts. Because we all are engaged in this meaning making, this community of trying to uphold democracy in libraries and make sure every kid gets to have a book that where they see a character that looks like them. Well, Allison, this is great. I don't, for as far as a, for a first episode, I think you killed it. Um, I really appreciate your perspectives and I really, I feel like I always learn a lot by listening to you. Uh, and I, um, you're, you're you're really good at putting stuff that's that's complicated and infuriating into fairly um, kind of simple and, and straightforward language, which I which I really appreciate. So thanks for doing this uh, this first episode. I'm I'm excited. Maybe try another one one of these days. Yeah, I think this is really fun, and I think um, we we have an interesting perspective, and it would be fun to keep uh, having these conversations, and hopefully other people will enjoy uh, listening alongside us and be in conversation with us. Yeah, I think the I think the people are going to demand it. Um, your husband's already sent us fan mail, so I'm gonna have to we're gonna have to tell him to calm down a little bit. But he is um, a bit of a nerd. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And used <laughs> to listening to me rant about what's fucked up in the world. So yeah. Well, so I maybe he's just glad it's like you can rant to somebody else to, today, and then you know, then he can listen to it, and he, he he could just be like, you know what, you can stop stop right there. I'll just I'll put the episode on. I'll just listen to it. So. Really, this is just for his sake. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So if you want to drop us a note about this episode, it's ykwfupodcast at gmail.com. Again, our website is ykwfupodcast.com. That'll redirect you to our Podbean site, which is a work in progress. So don't judge us by our shitty graphics and uh, bad typography at the moment. Uh, but for now, I'm your co-host, Tim. And I'm Allison. And we will see you next time, everybody. <laughs>